I think without question, all of us understand and know that money is a very important part of our economy. We need money for trading. Uh, our little granddaughter, when she, she comes over with us, there's a point in time where she, she, uh, she, she pretends like her mother that she's going shopping there. And so she'll take a little laundry basket, put two little teddy bears inside of it, starts pushing them around the house. And she says, I'm going shopping, I'm going shopping. My wife and I will ask her, where are you going? She's going Target, going Target. What are you going to buy? I'm going to buy some toys. And we said, well, you need some money. And she looks at us kind of weirdly and says, what is money, you know? And so my wife kind of taught her, you need some money. She gives her pretend money and says, has her open up her hand and she puts some pretend money. Well, she figured out the pennies are money. She saw some pennies lying around, took some pennies, and my wife gave her a little purse and put it inside there. And now she knows when she's going shopping, she has money inside of her purse. You know, the coinage of money began in 624 B.C. in the city of Lydia. Right at the beginning, as they started using metals for, for, uh, for money, racketeers and uh, people who were conniving decided and dishonest people thought, what a great opportunity for us to counterfeit money to make something that's, that looks, that's supposedly supposed to be real. We make it fake and we use that put in the circulation. And counterfeit means to make something that is fake appear as it's real. And it's imitation passed off fraudulently, deceptively as genuine. Anything counterfeit is not the real thing. The counterfeiting of coins would involve one of two things. They would take gold or silver, which pretty much was used as circulation, and they would, uh, in its liquid form, as they had melted down, they would intermix with it uh, some base materials, some other types of metals that would make it worthless, but you really wouldn't know unless you waited. The other way they would do it is they would, besides mixing it and adulterating the, the coinage, they would shave the edges off so that it would not have the same value as before. Well, they... Over time, they eventually came up with, a, with a, a way in which to ascertain. How do you ascertain true money from fake money, aside from weighing it on the balances? And so what they did was they started using the acid test. And the acid test is when you would apply nitric acid on top of the, uh, on top of the metal. And they knew that if it started wearing away very quickly, that there were base metals associated or melted into that. And that produced the, uh, the evidence that this was counterfeit money. Since that time, we used the term acid test to indicate that something has been tested to found true and reliable. If you put nitric acid in gold and silver, it just doesn't melt away like, like metals that are other base types of metals. Our, uh, our passage tonight, if you look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, is about the acid test of faith and truth. Of how do we know that we, how do we know that Christianity is the real deal? How do you know if a person has an authentic Christianity? How do you know if, in fact, that the person is truly saved? How do you differentiate a Christian from a Jehovah Witness and a Christian from a Mormon? And how do you differentiate a Christian from someone who says that, they're, they're, that they also believe in the Christian faith there? Just as much as counterfeit money is worthless, a counterfeit faith is also worthless. Your faith is under attack, especially right now as we look at what we believe is just the moving towards the end times. Every one of us, we have a, we're under a faith attack right now. Spiritual predators are seeking to corrupt ungrounded believers for the purpose of making them one of their followers. And so John, as he's writing through First John, of course, he's talking about here about what a real faith is and what it means to know Jesus Christ as Savior. But now he's transitioning here in chapter 4, and he's helping us to understand what it means to be a truth survivor. How can you survive a faith attack? How do you know... Especially if you're a new believer or you're somebody that's ungrounded or somebody who's never had a discussion with someone that believes a different type of, has a different type of belief system. How do you know, how do you defend, how do you substantiate that what you believe is true and real before them? And that's what John is doing here in chapter 4. Notice the first thing we see out of three points tonight. Notice number one, the very first thing we see is an adversarial presence. An adversarial presence. 
Two things John does. Notice in verse 1. First of all, verse 1, he tells us that many false prophets are gone into the world. And that was written in the first century. You can imagine now there are quite a few more false prophets. Then in verse 3, he says that he speaks of what is called the spirit of the Antichrist that is in this world. Many false prophets are gone into the world and the spirit of the Antichrist that is in this world, an adversarial presence. We consider this adversarial presence, number one, we see this evening there's a mastermind behind this adversarial presence. You go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8, for those of you who are saved, very familiar to you, but I want you to read it with me. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter writing about this, he's telling these believers who are dispersed throughout the kingdom, throughout the Roman Empire, they've been unsettled, they've been uprooted, and they've been, they're spread out. He's reminding them in the bigger picture of a spiritual predator, about the mastermind behind falsity and counterfeit faith, and his name is Satan. And 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. In that one verse, he tells us that Satan is a menace. He's walking around as a roaring lion. Lions like to announce their presence by giving off a roar. They let the gazelles and they let, the, they let all the wildebeests and they let all the animals around them know that they are there. Satan is a menace. Satan does not come to create peace. Satan comes to disrupt things. We have to remember something. Everything about Satan is the opposite of Jesus Christ. Everything about him is the opposite of Jesus Christ. False religion is the opposite of Jesus Christ. Jesus is light. The devil is darkness. Jesus is truth. The devil is a liar. Jesus is life. The devil gives death. Jesus seeks to save. The devil seeks to swallow. The devil is a menace. By the way, the devil's on the move. Look at verse 8 it says. He walks about as a roaring lion. Lions, by their nature, especially male lions, they typically lay around during the good part of the day because of the heat. They do a lot of their stalking when they see herds or they see a wounded animal or they see, uh, they see during that time perhaps there's a lot of young, innocent animals that they can overtake. But they're always on the move. They're always looking for prey. They're always looking for opportunity. Satan is on the move. He is not quiet. He's not sleeping. He's not slumbering. He's not sitting around waiting for you to come to him. He's looking for you. He's looking for innocent bystanders he can attack. Satan is a menace. Satan is on the move. Satan is a murderer. Notice what it says in verse 8. He walks about seeking who may devour. Look, and he's not interested in just injuring you. He's not interested in destroying you. He wants to destroy your faith and everything you believe and everything around that. Satan is the head of this threat. Satan has a hierarchy. Notice Ephesians 6.12. A hierarchy of the degrees and stages and levels of leadership there. The Bible says in Ephesians 6.12, For he wrestled not against flesh and blood. But notice the levels of these hierarchies, principalities, and powers. Rulers of the darkness of this world. Spiritual wickedness in high places. I'm a believer that the spiritual wickedness in high places may even be referring to dictators and uh, madmen who are in positions of world leadership. This adversarial presence has a mastermind. This adversarial presence has its ministers. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, please. He has his ministers. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, notice as I read this, please. For such are false apostles, counterfeits, deceitful workers, 
transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. We have to remember that he's an angel of light. He looks like, he tries to appear like he's with us, but he's not us. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to the works. Satan is an angel of light. He is his false apostles. He is his false deceitful workers. They transform themselves as ministers of righteousness. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter elaborates on this a little bit more, and it would be good for us to study just a little bit here for a moment. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Peter talks to us about these false prophets that have come into the world. In 1 Peter 2, 1, Paul, uh, Peter tells us about their doctrine. He defines their doctrine as damnable heresies that deny the Lord the bought. And mark this down. Every false teacher, every false prophet does not believe in a salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. They believe in a salvation by good works. And no matter how you cut the mustard, no matter what they tell you about things, at the end of the day, it's all about good works. You have to find a good work to heaven. Listen, there's, two only, there's only two possibilities that you find in the world. It's either good works or it's grace. And we know one thing, only grace can get you to heaven. Amen? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit of God. A damnable doctrine. They deny the Lord that bought them. They deny the fact that Jesus Christ died for their sins. They deny everything about, about soteriology. They deny everything about, about the imputation of sins. And our sins were imputed upon him that we were justified by faith through Jesus Christ. And he has a damnable heresy. That is their doctrine. But their methodology is deceit. In 2 Peter 2 verses 2 to 3, he says that the way of truth is evil spoken of. With feigned words make merchandise of you. Their motivation, the Bible says, is covetousness. We see through prosperity theology that the motivation is covetousness. Creflo Dollar there in the Atlanta, Georgia, one of the largest ministries in the world. Though it may sound like, just like, like Joel Osteen, that they're preaching a gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality of their goal is to make merchandise of God's people. These false prophets have their disciples. Consider Second Peter two, verses two, verse chapter two, verse two. He says, "He says many shall follow their pernicious ways." And you ought to Google and look up if you haven't looked at it for a while. You ought to look at all of the adherents of all the false belief systems in the world. Hey, beloved, in spite of COVID nineteen, that's why we have a missions program. That's why we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's why the, the mandate of the New Testament church is go out and start new churches and ordain men to the ministry. And that's why we're to preach the gospel because we as places when we consider like the ten forty window of the world, those are places of desperate need of the gospel with Jesus Christ, when you consider all the different world religions that are centered there, they need to hear about Jesus Christ. These false prophets, these false teachers, many shall follow their pernicious ways. They are just after people. They're after disciples. And listen, what they, want, what they focus on, they focus on someone who may be a new believer in the Christian faith and try to prey upon them because they know they're not grounded in the Word of God. Hey, beloved, you listen to me. They may come knocking on your door and ringing your doorbell. And they may be living their literature at your door. And you better know what you believe and know why you believe in it before you open the door as a kind christian you better read second john and remind yourself in second john we're not even supposed to bid them gods but you're not even supposed to entertain a conversation that is not the position place you ought to be where you make yourself vulnerable if you don't know what you believe you should not entertain them in a conversation 
They have their doctrine, they have their deceit, they have their disciples. They are despisers. The Bible says in 2 Peter 2, verses 10 and 12, that they despise despise governments. And they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. They speak evil of the things they understand not of. Listen, you get in a conversation with Job. Just just watch this. Back in pre-COVID, we'd have days where so many teams would go out and they'd be on the street and the Jehovah Witnesses would be out there and they'd been out a little bit earlier than we are. They're calving a street. And you would just notice this, that they would go, after we would go to a door and knock on it, they would fall right behind and they would say something like, let me give you something, don't listen to what they said. And we're doing the same thing. We're knocking the door where they've been. And he said, don't listen to what they said. And we tell them why. They're despisers. But Peter doesn't just talk about their disciples and their deceit and their despising. He talks about their damnation. The Lord Jesus Christ says he will bring upon them swift destruction and their damnation slumbers not. Many false prophets are gone into the world. Look at Matthew chapter 13 with me, please. Would you turn there? Matthew chapter 13, because Jesus gave insight about this in one of his teachings during, uh, when he taught a number of parables about the seed of the Word of God. Matthew 13. <clears throat> I want you to notice this. I read this tonight because it's a reminder to us of how Satan is a mastermind. Matthew 13, go to verse 24. He talks about the parable of the tares. The wheat and tares. And another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Now, the good seed is the word of God. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And so the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou now sow good seed in the field? From whence hath the tares? And he has said, An enemy has done this. And the servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, you root up the wheat also with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest will I say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Hey, Jesus do this parable of the wheat and tares, reminding us that Satan is sowing his tares through local New Testament churches. Paul talked about that in Acts chapter 20. He told those, those, uh, he told those, those uh, pastors there at the, from the church at Ephesus that met him in Miletus. He said, watch out that wolves shall enter into your flock and they shall speak evil of those things. And he says, they will blend in with you, but their end goal is to create disciples after themselves. Listen, Satan is sowing his tares throughout the kingdom. He's sowing his tares throughout local New Testament churches and places. And they look like the weed and they talk like the weed, but they are not the weed. And so he talked about their damnation at the end of the age, how God is going to deal with them. But I'm just saying tonight, as we look at this matter here, we see these, this adversarial presence is represented by this mastermind, is represented by his ministers, but we also see it through a movement. Go back to First John 2, please. Now I want you to think about this part, please. Verse 3 says, And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, even now already is it in the world. Now, my first thought when I remember as a new Christian reading this was, okay, the spirit of Antichrist, false teachers, but I want you to think with me for a minute how pervasive the spirit of the Antichrist is in our world. Definitely it is, a, it is found in cults, 
and false religions. The word anti means opposite of, opposed to, against. But I want you to think with me the other places where it's found. The spirit of Antichrist is found in our education system. Secularization, there's a good article that just came out today. Secularization, resulting in fewer and fewer and fewer children understanding who God is, having any, and not having any desire about the things of God. It's an interesting article you ought to read. Secularization through the education system. The moment a child is born, even through television leading into that, don't fool yourself that PBS is clean, it's not clean. Humanism, which exalts the human self, which has its roots in atheism, which has its roots in Darwinism and the origin of species. And by the way, if you just want to get some interesting reading, Karl Marx, a lot of the fuel that Satan used to uh, grow the idea of communism and Marxism in the mind of Karl Marx, a lot of it and most of it was seeded through the reading of Darwin's origin of species back at that time. Education. The spirit of Antichrist is in entertainment. You find me something that's Bible-friendly, if I can say that, through entertainment. The media world, and that's very expansive for media. Media is antichrist. Christians are being censured. Chris Cuomo is quoted as saying this in the media recently. Shut up, Christians. Your kind aren't welcome in public anymore. We don't want you in public life. They ridiculed the Catholicism of Amy Coney Barrett during the hearings, our own senator here in California. They say, if what you believe, you really believe what you believe, you're dangerous. That's what they say. It's found in our music industry. It's found in corporate policies. Hey, read your corporate policies. See what they're uh, amenable to. It's found in psychology, as I mentioned this morning. It's in our government it's definitely all throughout the New Age movement. It's interesting to see how in the last 40 years how the New Age movement emphasis has permeated every part of society. It is in witchcraft and sorcery and astrology. It is in socialism. It is in, it is in communism. It is in globalism. Even COVID-19 has been, has been politicized for all these nine, ten months here to, pro, to promote a spirit of antichrist. I'm just saying today, when you think about it, there's nothing that we're involved with in this world. The spirit of the antichrist is pervasive. It is all throughout what's going on. The spirit of antichrist is in this world. It's in what? When it affects how you function and how you believe. And listen, if you don't have a biblical mindset, if you don't understand what the Bible's all about. If you understand what God is all about, you understand what God's goal is in this world, it's easy for you and I to get sucked up and trapped into this spirit of Antichrist. That's why John, out of a heart of compassion, he saw what was happening throughout the Roman Empire and how Grecian, the Grecian world and materialism and all of those things were affecting them. He said to them this, that every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Listen, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ and they curse his name and they take his name in vain and they don't have anything good to say about Jesus Christ, you just might want to mark it down. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. In every serial presence. It was in John's days, even more in our day. Take special attention these weeks and these days as you read the news. What they promote and what they exalt. 
We see a second thing tonight. Notice in verses 1 and 3, we see an ascertaining practice. Notice John said in verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Now that's a good caution for us. Amen. Believe not every spirit. Before you get all happy about things, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits. The word try is interchanged with the word test. It's the idea of the acid test. David prayed, search me, O God, and know me. And he said, try me. Test me. Prove me. That's what try means, to put to the test. Do a proof test. Can it meet the approval process? Do an acid test to see if it's real or false. The word try is found 23 times in the New Testament. 1 Peter 5.21, it's translated the word prove. Listen to what he says there. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Our, our process, especially as independent fundamental Baptists, we're to prove all things. Is it the real thing? Discern, to prove. The prevalent teaching in John's time was the spirit of Gnosticism. Gnosticism denied the deity of Jesus Christ. They believed that all flesh was evil and all flesh was sinful. They said Jesus wasn't a physical person. Jesus was a spirit person. They did not believe he'd come in the flesh. And so John, realizing that that mindset had permeated the church at Ephesus and was was just predominant through that time, and I mentioned this this past Wednesday night, you find that Gnosticism may have had its origins in Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria was a place where just a lot of false cults and things came out of there. I mean, even the the corrupt, a corrupt text of the Bible came out of Alexandria there. And so when you think about that, this Gnosticism was very pervasive in, during the Roman Empire time. So if John had to write First John to give a defense of the Christian faith, and most specifically a defense of who the person of Jesus Christ is. Now in doing so, there are two things he shows us. Notice first of all, verse 2, he speaks about that which is proven. Now how do you know? How do you ascertain? How do you discern? How do you know? Even if you're not very well versed in the Scriptures, how do you know? Here's how the Bible says, verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Listen, if they're not Christ-exalting, if they're not preaching gospel that Jesus saves, if they're not, they don't believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, they don't believe He's sinless, if they don't believe He's the Son of God, listen, you just know right there, that is a false belief system they are anti-Christ and they're not of God. If you haven't figured out, Jehovah Witnesses are not Christian. Mormons are not Christian. The Armstrongism, which has probably faded away since that time, is not Christian. You know, a good book for you to go, a good pamphlet for you to read is still out there. I think his name is Irving Jensen or Keith Jensen, something like that, or Keith Brooks. Um, he, he came out with a chart that's called The Spirit of Truth and the Spirit of Error. And he does a wonderful comparison between Christianity and the various belief systems of the world. And it's a wonderful thing. The only thing I have a problem with, he doesn't use the King James Version as his translation, but he does a very good job of helping understand what they believe about the deity of Christ and about the Bible, the Word of God. And about salvation and a number of the, these key things here. Notice verse 2 again. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come to flesh and of God. Now, this proven, these approved, believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. You have to ask the question. You have to drill deep with them. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he's God and do you believe that he was man? Do you believe that he was God who was sinless? Do you believe man who was sinless when he came? That he was God, the God man who was sinless? What do you believe about that? You've got to read the scripture to them. 
I'd been saved for about two years, and the high school youth group that I was a part of there was an on-fire group there. I mean, just I think I attribute just a lot of seed beginnings in my life were just a, a few peers and, and young people that were with me that were just on fire for God. And I just want to tell you this, you know, one of the things that is, that is exciting is when you have compelling examples that are among your peer groups. There's someone who's on fire for God. And, and uh, one of the things we did as a service project, someone came with the idea, let's go down to Oakland Airport. And uh, back in those days, they didn't have security and things were loose, and you could walk around everywhere and so forth like that. And uh, we took hordes of tracks, and you can imagine about 60 young people, high schoolers, in, uh, that had, had tracks with them and gospel tracks. We had the Romans rolling and so forth like that, and not, none, of the, none, of, none of the very nice graphics that we have today. I mean, this is just very simple uh, things that are printed off those, those, those machines there. And so we went out there to the airport, and we just spread ourselves. We found out. We got instructions from, our, from the, the people that oversight of us, and we found out. We went all over the place and started giving gospel tracks out, and we looked for ways to give the gospel. Of course, I'd been doing some, some track passing uh, for a couple years there, so I just felt a little bit of, I felt the opportunity in my heart that if God gave me the opportunity, I would share the gospel with somebody. And I remember there was, there was at that time, the, the waiting area, there was a lady that was standing, a very tall, statuesque lady, very dignified lady, probably in her 40s, I would guess. And she was standing there by the window, and I, I guess she was just waiting for a plane to arrive, for, for a loved one to arrive there. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, I said, uh, I said, can I give you something to read? And she looked at me with a smile, and she kind of glazed at me and just gave me a stare. And then she said, yes, I'd like to receive that. And, and we started talking for a few minutes, and I said, uh, uh, I told, told her where I'm from, what was going on, and so forth like that. And we started talking. She said, well, I believe that Jesus Christ, I believe, I know who Jesus Christ is, I believe. And I said, really? We started talking. The more she started talking, I said, realize something doesn't sound right about what she said. And uh, so I said, ma'am, do you, I said, let me ask you something. I said, uh, and, I, and I hadn't been trained how to deal with this stuff. I just, just, you know, I've been reading my Bible and just praying and asking God to give me an opportunity. I said, well, ma'am, I said, something about what you said about Jesus Christ doesn't register well with me. And I'm not, I don't want to sound insulting to you, but can I read something to you? And I took you to the Gospel of John and went to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Those of you who knew John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. <coughs> and I had to read that, and, and she started reading. She said, well, let me, take, let me get, my, let me get, my, my, let me get my version of the Bible. And she took it out, and it was the New World Translation. I said, that's not the Bible, amen? The New World Translation doesn't have verse 2. The New World Translation has been rewritten to take the deity of Jesus Christ out. Beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They took that out. And the Word was God. They took that out. And the same was in the beginning. They didn't want to say Jesus and God are one the same. My friend, Jesus Christ and God the Father are co-equal. Amen. And they're co-eternal, and they're co-essential. And we started reading that, and she wanted to press her New World Translation. I said, ma'am, this is the Bible right here. And I, wasn't, I didn't know what a fundamental was in there, but I said, ma'am, this is the Bible right here. I took that little New Testament out, and I think I still have the New Testament right now, and I read it. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus Christ. He's the living Word. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glories of the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, the acid test wasn't what her fake Bible said. The acid test was what the authentic authority, the Word of God says. It says that the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. Jesus Christ is God. Confession means, as we saw in 1 John 1, 9, it means agreeing with. Confession is when we tell God, I agree with what you have to say about my sins. I agree with what you said about this doctrine. If, any, if we confess our sins to Him, in other words, we acknowledge what God says in His Word about our sins, and we say, God, I agree completely with what you say in your Word about my sins. Well, notice here, the word confess is still the same idea. He said in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
The confession means this. You believe and say with your mouth that you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is eternal. And be careful some who teach, they, or so-called Christian teachers, who will tell you something like this. They'll say, the eternality of Jesus Christ began at His incarnation. No, my friend, His eternality was always, He always is, always was, and always will be. It didn't begin His incarnation. Be careful what you read. <clears throat> Confessing Jesus Christ is that He died for our sins. That he was sinless. Listen, when you think about the doctrines of the Christian faith that are critical to our belief, one of those doctrines is the sinless life of Christ. And the sinless life of Christ is hinged to the fact that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's why Christmas time is a wonderful time because we preach about the deity of Jesus Christ and we make mention of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That, listen, to have a, to have a birth it requires a father and a mother. But listen, the birth of Jesus Christ had no human father. Had there been a human father involved, he would have been born in this world with a sinful nature. But bless God, the birth of Jesus Christ was a miracle birth. It was by the overshine of the Holy Spirit of God. And as, as Luke said, as, as the angel said to Mary, he said, that holy thing of thee shall be produced by the Holy Spirit of God. Hey, thank God it was a miraculous birth that brought Jesus Christ in this world. The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. His name shall be called Jesus. So he says here about confessing Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 10. Paul very very importantly, it was led by the Holy Spirit of God to write that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, that means agreeing with what God says. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus shall believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Hey, the proven is they confess that Jesus Christ is God. They don't skirt around the issue. They don't talk around the issue. That's why you've got to be very, very careful. Some of these guys, they get so overeducated, they go through all these years of training, all the way up to seminary level places, and they get this level. They can't even give a simple testimony of who Jesus Christ is like. By the time they're finished speaking, out everything came out of their mouth there's a lot of education that came out but there's nothing about the fact are you really saved or not simon peter said in matthew 16 16 simon peter answered thou art the christ the son of the living god it's as basic as that amen Nathaniel said in John chapter 1, verse 49, Nathaniel answered, said it unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Listen, the Ethiopian eunuch, listen, he'd been reading the scroll of Isaiah out there in the desert called Gaza, there in Acts chapter 8, and God led Philip all the way out there to the desert Gaza to see him. And Philip said to him in Acts 8, 37, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered, and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. My friend, that's an important statement right there in Acts 8, 37. I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's so important. Listen, the devil hates that verse so much. You look at these modern-day translations, and that verse is missing in those modern-day translations. You take that verse out, and you see Philip and the Ethiopian, uh, this Ethiopian unit getting into the water, and leads you to believe that water baptism saves. Listen, my friend, water baptism doesn't save. Faith alone in Jesus Christ is what saves a sinner. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, all you have to do is ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he God? Are he and the Father one and the same? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? There's the proven, but then notice verse 3. They're the pretenders. This is not the first time John mentioned these pretenders. In 1 John 2.22, uh, look, look what he says there. He said, who is a liar? Now, that, that's important. We understand what they are. John calls a false prophet, an antichrist spirit, a liar. And they are. Call it what it is. Who is a liar? And by the way, the devil is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. Remember, he's the opposite of truth. 
who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So in verse 3, every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Pretenders do not acknowledge the deity of Christ. They refuse to accept that He's the Son of God. They say He was a moral man and a good teacher, but He's not God. They say He was a good spiritual leader, but He's not God. They'll say He was a man of influence, but they refuse to accept the incarnation. The pretenders tell their followers they are Christ. That's what they do. In China, they have this cult called Eastern Lightning. I think it's got a woman leader. And she tells all her followers, I'm Jesus Christ. That's what they all do. These Asian countries, African countries, these other places like that, these false cults, they just, they arise, they come up, and these false Christs come up. When, when it gives, gives meaning to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, in the last days, these pretenders seek to destroy the faith of unsuspecting, naive believers. These pretenders preach another gospel, another Jesus. So we need to put them to the test. We need to try the spirits according to verse 1. We need to test them according to the scriptures. We need to get them to read the Bible, the word of God, and not deviate. We don't argue with them and we don't contest with them based upon their, their version of the Bible and whatever false version they have. We take them to the authority of the word of God because heaven and earth shall pass away, but God's word shall never pass away. And we take them to the word of God. So let's see what you have to say according to the word of God. And the longer you stay at it and the more you give them the Bible, they start to realize that you're tearing apart all their belief system because you know what? Their belief system is on shaky ground. Only faith alone on Jesus Christ is on solid ground. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus incarnate? Is Jesus God who paid the sin debt for you? Did he die for your sins? Did he pay the price? Is his blood efficacious? Is his blood, is his blood, can his blood wash away your sins? Is it, is, is the death of Jesus Christ, is it the satisfying vicarious substitution that it should be for your life? Do you believe that about Jesus Christ? And so John says in verse 6, notice we are of God and he that knoweth God heareth us and he that is not of God heareth us not. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And that's what it's about. The Bible is the spirit of truth, and whatever else is out there, the spirit of the Antichrist is the spirit of error. As we close tonight, we see one more thing this evening. We see an adversarial presence. We see the ascertained practice, but we see one more key thought. As John is writing this, these believers, as we read through this, especially chapter 4, they've been intimidated, they feel inhibited, and they feel like you know, we've been duped, and uh, John wanted to encourage him. God has you in this world for a purpose, and God has us in the world for the purpose. Amen? And he says, you don't have to be intimidated and fearful of the spirit of the Antichrist. He says, I want, I want, to, get, I want to bolster your faith. I want to bolster and encourage you that in spite of this, these Gnostic believers, we're going to deal with them, and we're going to clean them out and get them out of the house of God, and we're going to get out this false teaching, and we're going to get back the Bible preaching. Let me tell you, if you spend time on little devotionals, and you spend time on not expositoring the Word of God, and you don't spend time uh, preaching God's Word, and you don't spend time studying God's Word, listen, over time, if you're on a, if you're on a, a very light diet of the Word of God, you're going to be a light Christian, and you're going to be a weak Christian. But when you get back to 
the preaching of God's word and understanding who Jesus Christ is and, and not skipping through the word of God, but preaching through all the counsel of the word of God, you start to realize that you're not growing just on the milk, but you're growing on the meat of the word. As you're growing on the meat of the word, you're able to discern good from evil and false doctrine from, from good doctrine. You're able to discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. As you do that, you start to realize that you're boasting your faith. And so John, as he's writing this, the very last thing he tells them here in verses four to six is about this advantageous power. He said in verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. And they needed to hear that because the Gnostic belief system had so overtaken them and had so crippled their faith and their evangelism and their ability to stand up that John had to bolster them. So he's telling them, I want to tell you about an advantageous power that God has given to you. He says, notice what he says here in verse 4. First of all, this advantageous power is a personal relationship. Look what he says there. Ye are of God, little children. Amen. You are of God. You're God's purchased possession. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We are sons of God by adoption. Read Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 gets all into that. We're accepted of the beloved. You are of God. You're not of the world. You're not of the devil. You're of God. What a wonderful day it was when you got saved. You're no longer of the devil. You're of God. You've overcome them. Listen this, mo- this evening. You're not of psychology. You're of God. You're not, you're, not part of, you're not part of evolution. You're of God. Amen? You're not part of this world system. You're of God. You're not of this world. You're not of the flesh. You're of God, little children, the Bible says. You're of God. There is a relationship we have with God. And he says we've overcome them. God owns you and God possesses you and God loves you. Listen, you're God's child. You're of God. And the Bible says you have overcome them. He didn't say you're, you're about to overcome them. He didn't say that it's future tense. He said it's present tense. You have overcome them. The moment you got saved, you are a victor in Jesus Christ. First John 2.13, he said this. You've overcome the wicked one. 1 John 5, 4, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Hey, remember this morning we went through Isaiah chapter 15, that, that very, those very encouraging verses this morning, verses 7 and 9, and some of the things he said about those of us who are of God. Here's some of the things that, that Isaiah said. He said, the Lord God will help you. He said, I shall not be confounded. I shall set my face like a flint. I know I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. God stands with us. You know what he's saying with us all that? When you are of God, listen, you have a relationship with the God of all creation. When you are of God, it talks about the fact that you're saved. You're of God, and he says you have overcome them. Overcoming them means this. We don't fight for victory. We fight in victory. We were victorious the moment we got saved. And listen, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. You are of God. You have a personal relationship with God. You call God Abba Father. His spirit. Spirit lives inside you. You have this relationship of God. You are of God, little children. I mean, drive that down your heart. If you're discouraged in the spirit of this world and the spirit of the Antichrist and worldliness and materialism, things like that have kind of discouraged you, remind yourself tonight that you are of God, little children. Personal relationship. But notice he speaks about something else in verse 4. He talks about a powerful resident. You are of God, little children, overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you. Notice that thought. He that is in you. He that is in you. Who's in you? The Holy Spirit of God. Look at 1 John 2. Excuse me, 1 John 3, verse 24. 
And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he's given us. He that is in you. Hey, beloved, I want to encourage you tonight. He that is in you is not evil. He that is in you is not the devil. He that is in you is not conniving. He that is in you is not weak and impotent. He that is in you is not obsolete. He that is in you is always relative. Excuse me, always absolute, and he's not relative. He that is in you is not limited. He that is in you is not unloving, but loving. He that is in you is not helpless. He that is in you is the Holy Spirit of God. He that is in you is Jesus Christ, who's risen from the dead. He that is in you is God. Hey, beloved, you ought to rejoice tonight. He that is in you, this is not just a personal relationship, but you have the indwelling, you have the powerful resident of God himself who's living inside you. Listen, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Listen, we have God living inside of us, and the very fact that we have God inside we have overcome them. Listen, we have this personal resident, he that is in you. But notice, he, he uses this wonderful word to, to, to describe he that is in us. He says in verse 4, greater is he that is in you. You've got to remember, John is writing to them. He's talked to them about worldliness in chapter 2. He's talking about the devil and sin in chapter 3. He's talking about the spirit of Antichrist in the world in chapter 4 and bring them full circle back about this problem of Gnosticism that, that has permeated their church and has been pervasive in the world and, and the teaching that's out there that's, that's been fighting. By the way, ever since Jesus died, ever since Jesus rose from the dead, there's been contention, there have been false prophets, there's false teachers, there's, there's an Antichrist spirit that's been out there, it's against the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, today in our 21st century, is not any better, it's not any less, it's out there, and they're out making many more disciples and we're winning to Christ so John wanted them to understand he says now listen he that is in you is not less than the devil and he that is in you is not is not subject to the devil and he that is in you is not weaker than the devil and he that is in you is not limited and he that is in you listen he's greater listen he that is in you is greater greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world and hey, listen brother and sister Christ we have to think about this greater means more substantial greater means of greater magnitude greater means more powerful greater means dominance and capability listen God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God they don't have to be relegated by a puny mind and puny mindset that they're relative and they don't work and we get this mindset oh boy you know elections didn't turn out the way I wanted it to and you know we've got these shutdowns going on here and everything's bad and we've got this cynical spirit that everything's bad and we're forgetting about the fact that listen greater is he that is in you all these things in the world just prove one more thing that he that is in us is greater than he that's in the world we have to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of God that is greater than the Spirit of Antichrist and the Holy Spirit of God is greater than the Antichrist legislation that might get passed that might be anti-God but it doesn't change who God is they may pass legislation that is adversarial to us they may shut down the churches and they may tell us our tax tax status may be taken away and they may say you can't preach Jesus Christ and you can't preach all the word of God but I'm going to tell you it doesn't change the fact that God is still God and God is greater greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world he's greater the Holy Spirit is greater than the spirit of Antichrist. He's greater than any legislation that's passed. He's greater than any governor that hates Christianity. He's greater than any president that might be against God. He's greater than the media. He's greater than the education system. He's greater than the government. He's greater than any world power. Listen, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. I say tonight, our small little faith, our inhibited thinking, the poison that we have been reading and the Kool-Aid we've been drinking that tells us that God is dead. I'm going to tell you tonight, God is not dead. God is more alive than he's ever been before. 
God is greater than our limitations. God is greater than our fears. God is greater than our weaknesses. God is greater than our discouragement. God is greater than your storms. God is greater than your sorrow. God is greater than your depression. And God is greater than your anxiety. God is greater than your failures. And God is greater definitely than COVID-19. He's greater than any vaccine that Pfizer or Moderna or whoever it may be they come out with. God is greater than any your marital problem. God is greater than your parenting problem. God is greater than your shutdown that you have to deal with. God is greater than the fact that you may be unemployed. God is greater than the fact that you may not have enough money for retirement. God is greater than the fact that you might feel like you're sick. And God is greater than any cancer. And God is greater than any stroke. And God is greater than any heart attack. And God is greater than any language deficiencies. And God is greater than any physical limitation that we have. I'm going to tell you tonight, greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. We don't have a God that's limited, a God who's with a little L, but we've got a God with a great L, a capital L. We have a God who's greater than all those things there. He's greater because he lives in us. Can you imagine if we, if we would grasp by faith, greater is he that's in you than in this world? Can you grasp with me what that means when you get on your knees and pray and come boldly before the throne of grace? That's telling God you believe that I can do anything. You believe that I am the God of the impossible. You believe that there's nothing too hard for God. And by the way, do you believe tonight that there's anything too hard for God? Greater. He's greater than the advancements that the Islamic faith may make. He's greater than the fact that, uh, that, the, that any, any advancements that other faiths may make. He's greater than the fact that there's terrorism in the world. He's greater than all those things because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We get so focused on world events and world things, we forget about what God's doing inside of our lives. Right? It's a personal relationship from a powerful resident. We have an advantageous power. He's greater. He's not God with a little G. He's God with a capital G. He's not Lord with a little L. He's Lord with a capital L. He's Jesus. Amen. And to us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. John began, verse 1, by saying, Many false prophets are gone into the world. I'm certain there are probably names that popped up in their mind, just as we have false prophets today. But there is another prophet, a prophet you can trust. He is the true prophet of God. He is the true prophet who is like unto God in every way. He is the true prophet whose every word is truth and no lie. He is the true prophet by his own proclamation is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the prophet who is the living word. He is the prophet who is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the prophet whose God manifests the flesh. He is the prophet that every word he says comes true. There's nothing false about him. He's the true prophet who's eternal and ever living. He's the true prophet who died for your sins and rose from the dead. Who is this true prophet? It's Jesus Christ, the one that we said who's greater than is he that is in you than he's world. Yes, there's false prophets. But listen, when you do an acid test, you put the real against the fake. You show the authentic against that which is not real. And you start to realize we know who the true prophet is. And the true prophet is Jesus Christ. And listen, the false 
prophets are gone into the world and they've made their disciples. But I'm thankful tonight for the day that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I so chose my faith and realizing he is the true prophet of God. He's the prophet of God who walked the shores of Galilee and taught the word of God and proclaimed that he's the word, he's the way, the truth, and the life and he's the resurrection, the life and he's the, he's the living water and he's the bread of life and he's the door by which he said, if me, by, by me, if any man believe in me, if he enters in, he shall be saved. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Thank God tonight we don't end worrying about who the false prophets are and worrying about do I have to go look for where false prophets under under every every bush somewhere. No, we just look at the true prophet of God and as the false he rises, we compare it to that which is real. And listen, he that is in you is greater than he that's in the world. That's our prophet, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's why John, in the very beginning, wanted to exalt who Jesus Christ is. He said, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate the Father. Listen, 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 I'm done. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the holy one, the sinless one, the perfect one, the everlasting one, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Jesus Christ. Christ the righteous. We have an advantageous power. You're of God, little children. And have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you. He that is in you, the personal relationship. You know Jesus Christ is your Savior? You have a personal relationship? You died right now. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You need to settle that question. It's not a question to wait till next year. It's this question you need to settle right now. You need to know for sure that you're going to heaven. Christ died for your sins, and he rose again from the dead. And he offers to you the wonderful free gift of eternal life. He destroyed the power of the devil. We read that in 1 John 3, 8. He offers to you the gift of eternal life. Simply tonight, if you by faith would call him, 1 John 5, 13 says this. Look at this. 1 John 5, 13 says these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. If you just believe and have faith that he died for your sins and took your place, and he rose him for the dead, you can be saved. And I invite you tonight to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. I invite you tonight that if you as a Christian are feeling somewhat weak and inhibited, and uh, you feel like you're at a disadvantage, remember this evening, you're of God. You're of God. You belong to the Lord. You're his chosen possession. He purchased you. He bought you. You belong to him. He gives you a powerful resident through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Let your faith grow. Walk in power. Be used of God. Claim what he gives us here that you might stand for Jesus Christ and be used of him.